Amber already read our text for this morning in in its entirety. Uh, But I want to look at just one verse in particular. Before we start, let me let me pray. Heavenly Father, we we are so very thankful to be here this morning. To be sitting in this room, sitting in this room, singing songs, thinking on the majesty is that it is that is your story. That we who are sinful and rebellious have been offered the free gift of your son Jesus on the cross and in the empty tomb. Father, as we think about this this story, this event in human history, I pray that our hearts might be softened and molded by the work of your Spirit. It's in and through your Son, Jesus' precious name. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to you can turn to Luke twenty four, verse six. Most of the time when we study the Bible here at Christ Church, we study a bunch, or maybe not a bunch, at least multiple verses. Uh, today we're going to really only look and dwell at just one, and even only just part of it. Verse 6, he is not here, he is risen. Amen. He is not here, he is risen. This is why we're here, right? You're here because of this this message. We do not serve a God who is dead. We do not serve a Messiah who is dead. He is risen. But I think to best understand this story, We have to know more of the story. And so what I want to do this morning is I'm going to to make an assumption. I'm going to make an assumption, or or maybe I should say it in a different way. I'm going to push a belief upon you, and I'm going to assume at least for the next 40 minutes or so, you'll believe it with me. I'm going to push this belief on you, that the Word of God, or what we call the Bible, or the Scriptures, is in fact true. Now, if you're a believer, if you're a follower of Christ, if you come to this church, I'm pretty confident that at least most of us hold to that truth, that the Bible and what it says is true. Not just the historic events that take place, but the things that are being taught to us in and through it. 
Now, the reason why I'm going to say that I'm going to maybe push this belief on you, and that while I while I preach this morning, you're going to have to maybe hold to this truth, is because this is where the story resides. So if you don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your own personal Lord and Savior, you maybe don't hold this book to be true. But today, because you came to this church, and you're going to listen to me preach, I'm going to force this belief upon you, at least for a moment. Why is it that we celebrate with such passion and fervor that our God is not dead, but is living? Why? I think in order to understand the story, we really have to think back all the way, really, to the beginning. We're not going to look at a bunch of verses this morning. You're going to, you're going to have to just follow this story with me. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, we read that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created all things, both physical earth and spiritual heavens. He is the creator of all things. And when God creates all things, he does something very interesting. And if you study Genesis chapter 1, where we, where we encounter the, the first of Two creation accounts, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, are two different creation accounts. In Genesis chapter 1, we learn something about why God creates. He creates so that the capstone of his creation might dwell in his creation. We see that God says, let there be light, and there is light. Most of us understand the the problem with darkness, right? We understand that if, if things were dark, we would have a hard time interacting with each other. That's simple, right? That's simple. Darkness represents evil and wickedness, and God puts boundaries on evil and wickedness when he creates light. He says, darkness, you stay over here. Light, you go come over here. Then God creates an expanse. The assumption in Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, is that there's water everywhere. That's what existence, that's what the earth is. It's just simply a ball of water. And God creates this expanse in the water to make the heavens and the skies above. And there's water below and there's water above. And there's this space where water does not reign and rule. Water being chaos. And then God creates land. He separates the waters from the land. He creates plants, creates birds, fish, animals. And on the sixth day, God creates man. And he says, in the image of God, he created man. Male and female, he created them. And he takes man, and he places man in the midst, in the very center of his creation. Because the purpose of creation is man. To live in harmony with its creator. Isn't that amazing? What's, what's even more amazing is, that, is, is, is really just how much God cares for us. That in eternity past, he decided to make man to be companion for him, not because he needed a companion, he has himself in the Trinity, because he wants someone to love and to be 
brought by him. It's a great story to start the Bible. It's really great. Then we get to Genesis 2, and we see a little bit more details, maybe a little bit more up-close picture of creation. And in Genesis 1, the creation story is, is macro, it's big, it's large, it's, it's the universe. It's not, it's not micro like Genesis 2. Micro Genesis 2 is, is intimate. In Genesis 1, we read, that, we read that it's God, Elohim in Hebrew, which is the generic term for God, is creating. In Genesis 2, it's Yahweh, the divine personal name of God creating man and woman, Adam and Eve, the first man and woman. He places them in this garden of beauty and perfection. It's wonderful. And he says, he says to Adam and Eve, you can have everything you want to fill and subdue and reign and rule over the earth. You can have everything. Except for one thing, God says. One thing. There's this tree fruit tree in the middle of the garden, in the midst of the garden, it says. It's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and it's a strange name for a tree. We can all admit that. Now, it's a strange name for a tree because it's not about the tree. It's about the tree represents, and the tree represents the one thing that God holds for himself, that he alone is God. He says, this tree is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This tree is my tree. What it represents is mine to hold and possess by myself. God as creator and sustainer of the universe, the one who breathed the very life that you have into you. He is truly and rightfully deserving of everything. And he is truly and rightfully deserving of possessing what is right and wrong. And pretty soon, Genesis 3 rolls around. We make it three whole chapters, two and a half chapters before we mess it all up, we humans. And let me be clear here. It, it is us. The serpent, he's in the tree and he comes to Eve. Eve is, Eve is standing there, the first woman. She's standing there. She's gazing at the tree. Why is she gazing at the tree? By the way, Adam's right behind her. Adam and Eve are both standing at the tree, and they're looking at it, and pretty soon this serpent, who Peter tells us is Satan, he comes and he says, Didn't, did God really say you can't have anything in this garden? A lie. And Eve, amazingly, she goes, no, he didn't say that. He said just this one thing. He forbid this one thing. What, what, what will happen if you eat of it? Oh, we will surely die. That's what God said. We will surely. The, the punishment for sinning against the Lord, for deciding that the Lord doesn't get to make choices, doesn't get to determine what is right and wrong, the punishment for this is death. And the serpent, he goes, he goes, no, it's not. Lie. No, no, it's not. What will actually happen is you will become like God. Deception. Because when we reach out and we take that fruit with Adam and Eve, by the way, we're there too. Adam, the name Adam means humankind. It's all of us. When we reach out and we grab that fruit with Adam and, 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 and Eve, what we're rightfully doing or what we're actually doing is we're 
we're standing in the place of God. We're not actually God, but we're very much like Him in our own minds and in our own decision making. And the wages of our sin is, in fact, death. It's amazing, really, in Genesis chapter 3, the mercy of God. Sometimes we look at God in Genesis chapter 3 and go, man, he's really, is he really going to put Adam and Eve to death for eating a piece of fruit? It seems like such a minimal sin. But is it? Let's, let, me, let me paint a picture for you that, uh, that in theology books and things is often used, and I don't know where it originates. If somebody does, you can tell me. It's just this, this picture that's, that's drawn, this illustration, to help us understand why when God says, this is mine, don't eat of it. The wages is rightfully death. Imagine you're walking down the sidewalk, and you see a teenage boy, or, or girl, but let's just pretend for a minute that it's a boy. And he's got a grasshopper in his hand. And as you get closer and closer, you see that he's actually taking the grasshopper and he's pulling the legs off. You walk by. Probably most of us, especially most of us growing up in a rural, rural community, probably wouldn't even flinch. Perhaps we go, oh, that's a little bit cruel, don't do that. But then we walk on by. There's nothing. We're not going to think about it later on in the evening as we're laying our heads on our beds to go to sleep. We're not going to be we're not going to be torn up about it. But it's now imagine that same scenario and we're walking by. Now it's a frog, and the teenage boy is doing the same thing. He's trying to pull the legs off the frog. See how something's changed? There's a shift, right? Now we maybe go okay. Probably most of us aren't going to just walk past. We might say, ah, let's not do that. Now imagine it's a puppy. Man, things got serious, didn't it? Imagine it's a puppy and that teenage boy is trying to pull the legs off a puppy. There's probably not a single person in this room who isn't going to stop that child. Now, imagine for a second. As you walk down the road, you maybe know this teenage boy. You come across him and he's got his infant brother or sister. He's trying to pull the arms off of his infant brother or sister. The same action is happening, but what, what has changed? It's the one who we are sitting against. It's the one who we are rebelling against, ignoring Now, as we go through life and we recognize that there are sins in our life, and I'm, I'm going to assume another thing, that every person in this room knows that at some level you're not a perfect and holy person. I guarantee you, you wouldn't be here if you thought that. As we go through life, most of the time, we think of our sins as being against other sinful people, but that's not what sin is. David, in, in Psalm 51, after he sins against Bathsheba, he, he commits adultery with Bathsheba. He has her husband Uriah killed. He doesn't say, I've sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah and the people of Israel, although he did do that. He says, I have sinned against you and you alone, Lord. Because our sin is not against each other primarily. 
It's against a holy and perfect and righteous God who created us not to live as sinful people, but created us to live as perfect beings in his presence. And we are all sinners. This is what we've dwelt on since about six weeks ago when we started Lent. We've dwelt on this this crushing weight of our sin and our brokenness. Perhaps you're thinking just a little bit that you're not actually that bad of a person. After all, I'm just eating a piece of fruit. I'd like you to do something for a second. And maybe later you can you can think on it a little bit more a little bit more heavily. If you go into Deuteronomy when you see the Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments are a large representation of what it is that we do regularly. We regularly break the design of God's creation. The New City Catechism says, what is sin? Sin is, is rejecting and ignoring God in, his, in the world he created. It's rebelling against God by, by consistently breaking his law. If we study the Ten Commandments, it doesn't take us very long before we recognize, ah, I'm not doing very good. You shall have no other gods before me. You should not make for yourselves an, an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on, on the earth beneath. How many times in your life, how many times in the past week, how many times this morning did you put something else as primary in your life. I doubt that there is many people there are the, that there are many people in this room who have not at some point put money as the object of our affection. We've ignored our families or we've ignored the duties that God has called us to because we need to work so that we can make more money so that we can provide. We justify it, don't we? Jesus tells us in the New Testament. He tells us, listen, don't worry about the clothes you're going to wear, the food you're going to eat. If I feed the birds and I clothe the fields, I will certainly do it for you. But we justify. We make gods of money. We make gods of our jobs. We make gods of sports. Don't talk about sports, Ryan. I like sports. Talk about idols. We talk about idols. How many of us will sit in front of a television screen for hours on end and not even think about the Lord Jesus? Don't do that, Ryan. If we get into, should I take the Lord's name in vain? Number three. What that actually says is that we should, we should, in any point that we talk about God, we should have a just reverence for Him. Have you ever talked about God without revering Him? Keep the Sabbath day by 
keeping it holy, set apart. It's a time that we can remember the work that God has done for us. The work of creation where God has created this place so that we can be the pinnacle of His creation. We can be set in the midst so that we can be the purpose in it. Or what about in, in light of the cross? The rest that we now have, the eternal rest that we have in Christ Jesus' work for us. We sit and we dwell on the things that we've done wrong and we, and we, and we worry about them. Oh Lord, I, 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 I. Many of us rest in the work of Christ. We, we break the commandments. It's only the first four. How are you doing? Zero percent at this point? Honor your father and mother. Zero percent at this point? You shall not murder. Yeah, I got one. Jesus tells us, though, in the New Testament, you've heard it said, you should not murder. But if you hate in your heart, you've murdered already. Ah, zero. You should not commit adultery. Oh, Jesus also addresses that in the New Testament. I've never cheated on my wife, but uh-oh, if you lust, you committed adultery already. You shall not steal. Ah, I'm getting closer. I might have this one, but I took that I took that paperclip home from work the other day. Shall not give false testimony. Purposefully lie or deceive somebody else for the benefit of yourself. Shall not covet. We're Americans. We break that one all the time. Shall not look at somebody else's things and think, I should have that. Where are we at? Zero percent. All ten of the Ten Commandments. There's, what, 613 laws in the Old Testament. I guarantee you that there's not a single person in this room who'd be batting more than maybe 250. Twenty-five percent. For those of you who aren't baseball fans. We are sinners, right? Again, I'm assuming that you're going to trust this book as being at least somewhat true. And what this book very clearly teaches is that we are sinners. Paul tells us the wage of sin is death. We all justly, rightfully deserve to be dead. And in fact, we are. We live our lives before Christ. We live our lives dead. And our sins and our trespasses completely bound up with them. We have, no, we have no ability to make ourselves or will ourselves out of the bondage that sin and death have upon us. But you know what? You know what else the Bible teaches us? From Genesis chapter 1 to Revelation 22. Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. The whole entire Bible teaches us another truth. That God, Yahweh in the Old Testament, Christ Jesus, the Son, the Father, and the Spirit in the New Testament. God is the God of salvation. Maybe you didn't hear me. He's the God who saves, who redeems. In Genesis 3, when God is is dueling out the payment deserving Adam and Eve, He tells Eve that your descendant will crush the head of the serpent. 
The law is, is riddled with pictures of God's forgiveness and atonement for the people's sins, the sacrifices that are made to not because the sacrifices is good enough, but because God and His mercy is good enough to forgive. And then we come to Friday night and we call it, we, we celebrate Good Friday. We celebrate the death of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ because He went to the cross, not, not forced to the cross. He freely went to the cross and took upon Himself my sins and your sins and He paid the debt that is, that is so much who we are. And we celebrate. This is probably the easiest week to preach. Because it's the message, right? It's the message of this book. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you in on a little secret here. I was lacking last night. Felt like there was something missing. I love my children dearly, but I'm going I'm to talk about them. I try to not talk about my kids because I know that's going to be annoying whenever they get a little older and they know that I'm talking about them. But yesterday, my kids got, my, two, my, my older two kids got caught in a lie. Which isn't surprising at all, right? My kids, just like your kids, just like you are, are sinners. Nobody has to teach them how to sin. It's just built into their broken nature. They got caught in a lie. And so we sent them to bed early. Punishment. It should be punishment. Proverbs tells us not to, if you spoil the, or you, you spare the rod, you spoil the child. Right? Punishment. They went to bed early, then you get to stay up and watch a movie with, with mom and dad and Declan. Declan actually got to stay up and watch a movie. Which I think was the worst part of the punishment. But as, but as we were leaving their room, as we were leaving their room, there was tears. And crying. And I was sitting there, and I was listening to my children crying. And so often, I am struck by how bad a father I am in comparison to my father in heaven. So often, I think of, when I raise my voice, I think of, man, has God ever shouted at me? Has he ever lost his patience with me? Rightfully, he, he should have at this point. I am far more rebellious to my Father in Heaven than my kids are with me. I think I have fairly well-behaved kids. And I was sitting there and I was thinking and I was listening to them crying and all of a sudden, right in the back of my head, this thought just popped out of nowhere. He said, he said, you want to do what I did? Go in there and lay with your son or your daughter in their punishment. Isn't that what Jesus does on the cross? And that struck me. And the reason why I recognize just how often I am a bad father, I didn't. And I'm sitting there and, and thinking about that, and pretty soon another thought occurred to me. Yes, Jesus comes down and he takes punishment upon himself, but he doesn't take the punishment upon himself with us. He takes it. He takes it from us. 
So it's not me going in and, and sharing in the punishment with my children. It's me going in and taking the punishment from my children. And, and not just that, but Good Friday is not Good Friday if Sunday resurrection morning doesn't happen. Because it's not just about the payment for my sins. It's about the freedom from death. Jesus races from the dead. He, he breaks death itself. He breaks death itself. And so what I should have probably done is I should probably went into my children's room and told them that I'm going to take the punishment for them. And they are now free to go and enjoy life. I made all sorts of justifications why I shouldn't do that. There needs to be consequences. They shouldn't be lying to their mother. They need to know that it's wrong and bad. Yeah. Don't they? Don't I? Let me tell you a little secret. Most of the time, you are the one speaking crushing words to yourself that you're saying. Most of the time, you are the one and you alone are the one who is speaking judgment upon yourself because in God's eyes, the punishment has already been given out. The debt has already been paid in Jesus Christ's blood and body on the cross. And you are no longer bound to sin and death. You are, dare I say, free. Most of the time, to conclude Easter, I I say two things. Number one, if you have a relationship with Christ Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I praise God for that. And, And today is a day that we sing and we celebrate more than any other time of the year. Not because all the other days are less important, but because this day especially we've been so fixated upon the work that Christ has done for us that we are just bubbling over with joy and happiness. And that is so incredibly wonderful. But if you do not know Jesus today, let me ask you one more question. What is your excuse? Is it that you think that you are not good enough? Because you're not. You are not good enough. But Christ Jesus is. And maybe you think that that once, once, if if I would become a Christian today, tomorrow I will certainly sin. You will. But I can guarantee you one thing. I can guarantee you one thing. That tomorrow, if you don't become a Christian today, you will sin. You will remain the same dead person tomorrow as you are today. Because you and yourself are already dead and the dead person cannot bring to life himself. Jesus has done it. He has paid the debt that you rightfully accumulated. And by the way, that was 2,000 years ago. He knows that you're a sinner. He knows that you're a sinner, and yet He still, 2,000 years ago, sent His Son to die for you and to raise for you 
There's nothing left. There's a barrier. Perhaps only your stubborn pride thinking that eventually I'll be able to make it work. We serve a living, breathing Savior. One who took the punishment of sin and death. And who broke the, the chains of sin and death. We're going to take communion. Normally, like I said, we take communion at the end of, at the beginning of service, but on Easter we typically take it at the end, mostly because the message is a communion message. If you are saved by the blood of Christ Jesus, are freed by the resurrection of Christ Jesus, we encourage you uh, this morning as we pass the cracker in the juice to participate and remember what Christ has done for you. And it is what Christ has done for you. If you are not a believer, I encourage you, while God is still calling you, to accept his work, to receive his blood that was spilled for you. Heavenly Father, we, we turn to you now, grateful, exceedingly grateful for the work that you have done for us. As we take this, these symbols, the bread and the juice, let us be fully aware of the price that was paid so that I might be redeemed and freed. Father, we praise you and we honor you. It's in Jesus' precious name.